3: Of our discussion with kevin cry waterfowl program leader for texas parks and wildlife and i'm again joined here in studio by my co-host chris jennings chris okay hey. and on the phone by kevin cry kevin thanks for spending some more time with us absolutely we're going to jump right in and pick up on some of the topics that we uh, we spoke about on the on the last episode uh, filling in some additional gaps that we didn't didn't cover in in as much detail and so as we if talk about these shifts in bird distributions duck distributions uh, or goose distributions uh, obviously that's a that's something that your hunters and your consti- constituents are going to react to and you as the waterfowl program leader are the person that they interface with on many occasions So I know if we were to go to the East and talk to your counterpart in Larry Reynolds, he would talk about how people are – and other states as well – how people are really frustrated and they're trying to look for explanations as to what's going on and – Uh, And, of course, Texas has a a wealth of data, and there are some fairly stark contrast or fairly stark patterns occurring across the Texas landscape that help us understand what's going on or at least speak to what we think is going on. So what do you hear, like, especially among your coastal hunters, which are the ones that are really seeing the change in bird numbers uh, on on the decline – what's their reaction are the patterns on the land on the landscape uh, stark enough that they're able to really see what's happening or are they or is there still some uncertainty in their mind as well
4: uh again uh it's uh really depending on where they're at where you know where, where you where where you set your feet to go hunting type of scenario um when you look at the gulf coast um going inland and then you obviously follow the gulf coast it's very very different um Yes, people are feeling those impacts without question. Um, Southeast Texas marshes um, are just uh, not what they used to be. Um, and bird uh, abundance and visitation to that part of the world is just not what it used to be. Um, you know, we don't detect mallards in that landscape anymore. Um, it's driven by shovelers and teal and gadwall. And uh, and yeah, there's real frustrations at times. Uh, most of those guys that harm that landscape and even Throughout most of the Gulf Coast, you know, they're they're kind of either in a club or they have a blind and it gets real frustrating, um, you know, expecting, hoping that birds come to your spot, your postage stamp on the landscape consistently, uh, not only throughout the season, but year after year. And these birds um, are simply responding um, to one, declining habitat conditions, and two, Um, you know, pressure in those landscapes. They're getting wise to us, if you will. There's nowhere that we don't know they can go. We have better camouflage. We have better decoys. We have better uh, boats. We have better, you know, utility vehicles. We have everything. Google Earth, um, these birds are now responding to that. And so, yes, they're very much aware. um, But there's still some great, great, great places uh, throughout the entire Gulf Coast ecoregion. And there's just some great examples of people that are doing an incredible amount of work managing, uh, very actively managing wetlands and water. Uh, They're putting um, their club members or clients on consistent, uh, successful hunts, breaking records, um, you know, most years um, because of all the work they put in throughout the summer. And so this idea that um, ducks are trained to go somewhere, go somewhere uh, really kind of falls apart when if you build it and you build it properly, ducks still come. And, uh, and that's just been proven time and time again. And so for uh, people that are willing to do the work, uh, they're doing great. Uh, it's not cheap. I mean, obviously not everybody can do it. Um, and so it, it can get frustrating for those, especially the public duck hunters that are you know, restricted to such small uh, pieces of landscape uh, with a growing um, number of people wanting to participate in that that area. So yeah, it's it's
3: being felt. I guess the nature of my question was more specific to you know, our, our, well, my thinking was that if if there's any place where people would be able to visually see what's happening to the landscape, it's probably some of the regions of the Texas coast, and I'm really thinking about that area around Houston. Having having traversed that Houston metropolis uh, numerous times, it takes at least sixty minutes on the interstate to get from one side of Houston to the other and probably even farther now and Houston is expanding westward into some of the historic rice ground and so you can see right before your very eyes the loss of that important waterfowl habitat and so I guess that was the nature of my question is are those people that are able to see it on a daily basis sort of more accepting and, and is it easier for them to realize some of the driving factors of it and it sounds like sounds like probably for some of them there, it, it is but others uh, probably still don't uh, or, or just you know and it's just natural to be frustrated I, I get that
4: yeah it's a real hard pill to swallow when you you know grew up in the Katy area and, and knew what that was like 30 40 years ago um and to drive that same landscape today uh, obviously visually it's, it's changed but um you know it's now replaced with buildings and houses and factories and you know giant uh, distribution centers and so yeah that's that's extremely frustrating um for people that knew what it was and it's and it's being felt throughout the gulf coast especially when you start talking about things like uh snow geese and white front geese um that landscape is um you know no, nothing uh, like what it used to look like um and changes are happening daily um to that landscape uh such that you know it's continuing to um, deteriorate, if you will, uh, in, in much of it. Uh, but there's still some great examples of people doing good things, but it's, unfortunately it's just kind of a small pocket of what used to be there.
1: Yeah, Kevin, that kind of leads me to my question. I've, I've hunted down along the Texas coast quite a bit, you know, everywhere from, um, you know, sea drift and down all the way I hunted Baffin a couple years ago. Um, last year I went down to El Campo um, doing some teal hunting but, you know, a lot of those guys that I hunt with, I've hunted with down there, some of the old heads, I guess you could say, some of the older guides who have been around for a while, you know, they all cut their teeth guiding snow goose hunts in that area. Um, and and they all talk about, you know, the heyday. And, I, and growing up in Indiana, I even had friends who traveled down to South Texas to snow goose hunt. Um, and I was always, like, fascinated with the fact that, you know, they, they did it, um, and snow geese in general, but... Kind of talk about how that whole game has changed and why. I mean, those geese are not showing up in massive numbers like they used to, and why is that?
4: Well, it's um, a very multifaceted answer to be honest with um, you. But there are some really key things to, to, to note in this conversation. Uh, and then probably the most important thing um, that obviously Mike has lots of experience with is the lack of care and capacity. You know, the, the care and capacity difference from. 40 years ago to now is dramatic. Uh, you know, we have deficits um, on the landscape right now for uh, ducks and geese along that landscape. Um, you know, Houston moving west, like we just talked about, has, you know, put its footprint on top of what used to be some of the best um, goose wintering habitat um, in North America. You know, like you said earlier, people came from all over the country uh, to come hunt light geese. We invented the game. They call them Texas rags for a reason. Um, we invented snow goose hunting uh, pretty much across the board uh, and we got really, really good at it. And um and it was. It was a, a economic, um, a very important economic feature in that landscape. You know, every little town had a picking shed, every little town had somewhere you go take your birds, get cleaned. There's still hunting lodges, um many of them abandoned, uh strewn all across that landscape. Um, that you know, I just kind of get sad when I drive by. Um, you know, don't, they don't have any geese nearby. Um, and probably one of the biggest changes um, back in the late 90s, um, it kind of you kind of just see the moment that it happened when goose numbers started to decline, um, which is which is interesting because when you look at our goose population data, now, mind you, again, midwinter data, one snapshot in time, not capturing all the ingress and egress, the and coming and going, but um, 60s, 70s, 80s were not our highest abundance. Um, it was actually mid to late 90s when we had our highest numbers, at least according to our index. And um, then we really saw a dramatic change. Uh, yes, it actually correlates uh, just to visualize very, very closely uh, to the liberalized regulations, You know, 98, 98, 99, that's when we started seeing our decline. But that's also when we started seeing a real interesting shift in human behavior on the landscape. Historically, that landscape was uh, tied up by uh, a handful of of outfitters um, that did all kinds of cool management, including setting aside sanctuary and roost ponds. Um, And it wasn't, you know, just a handful of people had access to it. Uh, And then all those people would come in and they'd take them hunting. It was about that point that duck hunting uh, really began to influence that landscape. Instead of having all these ponds that side the geese and goose hunting in the rice fields and duck hunting being something you did while goose hunting, it just literally changed overnight to where everybody wanted to go duck hunting and started building duck ponds and blinds out. And that change in hunter behavior had great impact on, on goose numbers uh, itself. You correlate that to declining carrying capacity um we started seeing those those falls you know every almost every square inch of that prairie uh, and even closer down to the, the coastal marsh um, was now being hunted uh, but for ducks uh, when historically that was not uh, quite as a uh, popular if you will technique and so we bird now went from having you know, people that really really cared about them and kind of Kept care of them all winter long, and made sure that they had a, a welcoming spot to be. Um, you know, all those places now have on them, and that really began to see our decline. Um, you correlate that further on down the road with what we talked about earlier with the drought of record and curtailment of irrigation water uh, and loss of rice acres. You know, that's just con- continued, um, you know, wounding, if you will, um, to the overall big picture. Uh, and that brings us up to, you know, this last few years, some of the lowest counts we've had, um, you know, ever in our survey. This survey goes back to the, the 60s. Um, and, you know, the, the coastal mid-coast, uh, the southern mid-coast, you know, 59 south to the Gulf Coast itself uh, had the lowest count we've ever seen. There just weren't birds along that coastal marsh zone like we used to see. There's still some really good pockets and some good landowners um, people doing some really good things, you know, in the traditional area of Garwood and Eagle Lake, um, and, and a number of other different places in there. Uh, but we still see birds, but like you said, it's it's uh, nothing like what was there. One of my favorite exercises is to go back and look at historical imagery on Google Earth. You know, go back in time. You start pulling up black and white imagery of of uh, all kinds of reaches. You know, Western Houston. Um, deep, deep uh, parts of, uh, you know, Calhoun County, uh, southern Matagorda County, and you start looking at those pictures, and the entire landscape was rice. The entire landscape. And you're just like, wow, look at this, you know. And you fast forward to current day imagery, and it's, you know, it's a a number of things. Um, And it's not rice. You know, it could be turf grass. It could be cotton. Um, it's Just a number of things, and that's just not there. And... It's driving it. So, I mean, you look at a the combination of hunting a landscape much differently uh, to um, declining carrying capacity, declining resources, um, basically rolled out into the perfect storm of of, you know, how to essentially not attract geese to the Texas coast anymore.
3: That's a great exercise for anyone to do, anyone that cares about waterfowl, really all across North America. If you want to see how dramatically a landscape can change, a landscape that was historically before human settlement and even into, into human settlement, uh, European settlement of, of the area, how it can change in a way that fundamentally alters its, uh, its usefulness for waterfowl. I encourage everyone that hears this to go spend 20, 30 minutes. And if you start out committing 20 or 30 minutes, chances are you're going to be there an hour to do exactly what you just, what you just described because the, that area around Houston – uh, and I think maybe east of Houston but certainly uh, west of Houston into the Texas mid-coast is one of the few areas where you can find historical imagery dating back to the 30s that's on Google Earth. It's some black and white imagery that I think was, was obtained by maybe some of the early oil and gas exploration I guess it would have been oil exploration at that time in that region and that's it's been, uh, at least that's my assumption it's been my understanding of the source of some of that imagery. But you look at the historical prairie wetlands that occurred. There's still numerous areas in that black and white imagery that where you will see these uh, these natural depressions. But then there's also hundreds of thousands of rice acreage that you talked about as well uh, back in the 30s. And then you do that, you know, move the slider forward to see what it is now, and, and there's your answer, you know, in terms of how the landscape has changed. And, I mean, that's really... A neat piece of imagery that can show without question what has happened to the landscape uh, and it's continuing as we kind of talked about with houston moving moving westward there so you can't have those things and not think that it's going to uh, impact waterfowl populations
0: you and your dog are a team fuel is best in the field and in life with purina pro plan Sport.
3: Another thing I want to say here about the goose trends on coastal Texas, in uh, when we're talking about explaining phenomena of nature, whether it be uh, wildlife or natural resources or whether it be in the human medical field, you know, sort of the... One of the gold standards is, is sort of like a randomized treatment control experiment. You know, you can get in the medical field and talk about double blind and all that kind of stuff. But really what you want to want to have is like a randomized treatment control experimental approach. We rarely get that or we don't get that on a, at a landscape scale. It's not like we have another Texas where we can go and do a... Uh, a, a treatment and a control so a lot of times what we do as you've dis- as you've alluded to is just look for correlation and there are few examples of what you would, you would just kind of look at on the surface and say is a very strong correlation between uh, the, the occurrence of liberalized regulations, the light goose conservation order in the late 1990s, and that decline of goose abundance on coastal Texas. It's not to say that's the only factor driving it. The other thing that was happening, though, uh, you've talked about this also, is longer-term decline in rice acreage. If you look back in the 70s, rice acreage on the Texas coast was – 500,000 acres. Well, so what's also important to know about rice agriculture on the Texas coast is that for every acre of rice, planted rice in a given year, there's at least one, in many cases, two additional acres that were fallowed. There's this two year uh, or three year rotation historically in texas and i think it's largely still practiced so if you had 500,000 acres of planted rice that meant you had somewhere in the neighborhood of a million acres of unplanted rice which most often was just kind of left fallow that's not to say that was important goose habitat but it's at least area that's you know that's not, not disturbed or not plowed or not developed whatever a lot of land out there uh that that geese could distribute themselves across and then by the late 90s you're looking at planted rice in the Texas coast uh, of somewhere shy of 300,000 and of course it's gone down uh, south of 200,000 now. So you're losing hundreds of thousands of acres of rice from that landscape and I don't have the numbers in front of me but I'm pretty willing to bet that you haven't you did not see a, a concomitant a similar decline in the number of hunters and the amount of hunting pressure. So what you what you have is a declining habitat base but a s- somewhat constant uh, hunter base and similar amount of pressure you might say and you're squeezing all of that into a smaller area so you've kind of got a magnification effect on there and like I said that's not a treatment control experimental type of approach but certainly a lot of correlation going on there and uh, it's it's so the other thing I just want to point out you know the a lot of other things happened in the nineteen and in, in the late nineties. I know there are some groups out there that will point to a certain piece of legislation as a big <laughs> reason for some of the things that were ha- that were happening. I'm not going to let us be the ones that that ignore that and, and you know as a way to give them fuel for some conspiracy. Uh, but the but that has nothing to do with kind of what we're seeing here. There were a lot of other things that happened in the late nineties. The emergence of spinning wing decoys also came about. Mud motors really came about and began to give greater access to all the the areas that waterfowl occupy um their host of other things landscape scale changes that that really occurred that coincidentally or otherwise happened in the late 90s and it, it's really unfortunate there was that confluence of changes in that in that uh in those few years because it really does challenge our ability to tease out uh any of those things
1: yeah and it kind of plays into uh when we had you had ray alasaskis mm-hmm. on and he talked about that that's kind of the same time frame when those that light goose population exploded so exponentially, you know, in their breeding grounds that, you know, Ray kind of mentioned and and that these colonies started intermingling. And so, you know, the, the chance of, you know, these birds all coming back to one spot or coming back to a specific, and they started getting a lot more opportunistic. Uh, they started looking at some of these, probably looking a little deeper into some of these factors. You know, the hunting pressure, the rice abundance, things like that. And when these different colonies came together, you know, there's a potential. It's just another variable that you could add in there.
4: So the late 90s kind of, I like to call it the the time we declared war on the Smokies as a continent, if you will. We did. We declared war on this bird for a number of different reasons. And when that happened, initially, there was only one state ready to deal with it. And that was us. We're the ones that invented the game. We were very, very effective. And we went out and we enjoyed it. We enjoyed it for two or three years. Birds got wise to us real quick. Um, You know, it it went from somewhere around just shy of 30,000 participants in the conservation order in Texas. The lion's share, obviously, beyond the Gulf Coast. To most years, we barely break a 1,000 people playing in the game anymore in Texas. Um, Just because we don't have that opportunity. Uh, That opportunity is is elsewhere. And obviously, we're all aware where that's taking place and how it's exploding. But the reality is, The war on snow geese made them break the rules. You know, snow geese are breaking the rules of what they used to do and why they used to do things. You know, they're in bigger and bigger and bigger, more organized concentrations, staying further and further north. Like I said earlier, sitting, not batting an eye, sitting on 60, 70, 80 feet of water, as long as there was somewhere to fly out and eat food. Um, And be organized. You know, the more eyes, the better. So when these birds are being hunted and hunted hard, very effectively with all kinds of new gadgets and decoys and you name it from Peace River, Alberta, all the way to the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast, they're wise to us, you know, there's not a goose hunter out there. that doesn't know how hard it is to shoot a snow goose, especially when you're coming off three and four and five years of very, very poor production. Um, And, you know, to the you know, so now you have this extremely old smart flock, when they break the rules of I'm no longer going to coastal Louisiana, or coastal Texas, I mean, I'm talking marsh. You know, they used to live in the marsh. They're now saying I'm happy as can be to be around 200, 400,000 of my brothers and sisters sitting on a power plant lake in middle of America and you know surrounded by millions of acres of corn in every direction. Why would I go any further south? Indiana is a bigger goose state than
1: Texas right now. It's no goose.
4: Uh, Illinois has more
1: snow geese than Texas. Oh, absolutely. I did a kind of a bonus episode last week with uh, one of our migration editors, Jay Anglin. He lives in northern Indiana, and he he spent like three or four days in southern Indiana, and he's calling me, and he's like, man. He's like, there's probably close to a million snow geese in southwestern Indiana right now. Um, And that just goes to show you, but that's exactly what you described. There's a power plant lake. I won't even name the power plant, just... You know, not to give any information away, but yeah, but there's one there, and it is literally surrounded by tens of thousands of acres of cornfields. Yeah, and it's like then those birds are just happy. No,
4: they are, and, and it's you know a, a, a strategy that's beneficial to them to be closer to the prairies and closer to their breeding grounds, I and mean, they don't have to go as far. So when you know this conversation about declaring war on the snow gets, you know maybe it's the same especially the geese that historically went to the coastal marsh of Louisiana and Texas, they might've been, you know, might've been wise to not declare war on them. Um, We probably couldn't have controlled, you know, hunting wouldn't have had that impact. Um, If we were just not liberalized, we probably would still be in the same boat we're in. we would still have fewer snow geese on the Texas coast. There's no question, but the continued pressure on that bird on a scale at which we're doing it is having great impacts on their behavior and their distribution, and you know, sitting in sitting in two inches of water in a rice field uh, is pretty rare anymore uh, compared to what they're doing, you know, elsewhere.
3: Uh, I remember when you guys in Texas were actually thinking about, um, you know reducing the the bag limit uh, shortly after you went into the light goose conservation order uh and i don't i don't know if y'all ever went through with that but i remember that was one of the uh, this conversation was happening you know 10 15 years ago probably 12 years ago so uh the other thing that i'll, I'll point out here i'm i have my laptop with me i'm looking at various graphs and share some data the other thing that and kevin i don't know if you if, if you are actually aware of this, the magnitude of these numbers, when we talk about the decline of planted rice acres on the Gulf Coast, it has increased by an even greater amount in, in the area known as the, the Lower Mississippi Valley. That's basically the mississippi Alluvial Valley of southern Missouri, Arkansas, and Mississippi and into northern Louisiana. In the 1970s, collectively across the alluvial valley of those four states uh, – three, three states, four states – Uh, Louisiana four I can't count Um, there was about 500,000 acres of planted rice in a given year now Kevin do you know what the number is now it's I want to say close to two million it's close to two million So, fourfold increase. And so that provides a lot of food. Now, you will talk, I'm sure, at some point about how after harvest, there's not as much food in these rice fields as there used to be for a number of reasons and, you know, kind of all that aside. The other thing that is there with two million acres of rice is a lot of places for these birds to distribute themselves and get away from the pressure. And that's what they lost in Texas when you go from 500,000 acres down to 200,000 acres or so. I mean, it, it's there's tenfold more acres of, of available rice on the landscape, uh, or nearly so in the Alluvial Valley uh, than it was on the Gulf Coast, across a similar yep. Well, that's not that's, – I'm sorry, the Gulf Coast of Texas. I'm sorry, the Gulf Coast of Texas. Um, but uh, it's a fourfold difference between the Gulf Coast – Texas and Louisiana and then the alluvial the Valley of those four states so and that matters that that matters
4: it matters and, and one of the things that's interesting is you know because of our snow goose decline you know like I said earlier we, we changed our tactics We went to become duck hunters all on the Texas you know prairie there's a duck bond in every hole now um, the maV um, you know that, that landscape you know greenheads are the are the, the the prize right and so when all those birds have moved out there, Um, They didn't have, um, you know, the people chasing them. Um, And so I imagine snow goose hunting in that part of the landscape, especially in conservation order is growing. Uh, I'm aware of a number of outfitters uh, that used to be on the Texas coast that have moved to that landscape uh, to go take advantage of those geese. Uh, But still, I suspect mallard is king there. And, you know, they're not being pressured um, near as bad as, you know, the Texas and Louisiana coast where, you know, we got a, a duck blind every, every, you know, half mile. It seems like in some places. And so it was kind of welcoming. I mean, obviously you're talking about incredible amount of food, uh, but then at the same time, you know, they, they, they weren't being harassed that badly. Um, and so, yeah, I, why, why do we think it, why are we surprised by it? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Why are we surprised that these birds are, are changing? Um, it just so happens to be that a lot the Arctic geese, white fronts, snow geese, and even small Canada, uh, seem to be the most quickly adaptable. And so we're seeing it right before our eyes. We're seeing crazy things happen with white-fronted geese. We're seeing crazy things happen with small Canada geese. Obviously, uh, incredible things happen with, with snow geese. And, um, you know, it's kind of a unique time in waterfowl management to be able to see this happen. But the reality is, sadly, it's because of some of the things that we're doing whether we're changing habitats on them and, or, you know, where they're, they're, they're encountering pressure and uh, they're doing it for a reason. And they got wings for a reason. And it's pretty awesome. You know, I, I hate this idea of the vilification of a snow goose. Uh, people justifying heinous acts because we declare them overabundant. Uh, in reality, there's not many remaining species on planet earth that are more awe inspiring visually and audibly than huge concentrations of snow geese. I mean, you think about what my job is in the state of Texas. We might be one of the few people left in North America that really want, them, and we want them back. And we're trying some things. We're doing some changes. We're even looking at some migratory changes because we want them. We like snow geese, and we want to continue that tradition. Uh, but elsewhere, you know, they're they're kind of vilified, and um, I think they're one of the most magnificent species left on planet Earth. And, in a, in a lot of different ways. And so I like to celebrate them, whereas, you know, some places like to say, you know, justify heinous acts, protect, you know, certain other areas of the planet. But um, I think they're an amazing bird. And and here in Texas, we're going to continue to do uh, whatever we can. Uh, and we got some really cool new programs and potential regulatory changes coming. Um, they kind of prove that we do care about them. And we got our fingers crossed. We, can, we know we're never going to get back, you know, to the quote-unquote heyday. Uh, that's an unrealistic goal, but it wasn't long ago, soon after the BP oil spill and a couple of really cool programs that went out on the landscape, that we were able to get our winter index above long-term average that one year. And that was because of those programs. And so our goal right now, my goal right now is to get back to long-term average and, and start putting habitat uh, on the landscape, uh, talking about sanctuary, talking about roost ponds, uh, big picture stuff and uh we' yeah, we're, we're, we're going to go see what
1: we can do yeah, I think one thing that I'm seeing and i I've snow goose hunted uh, the last i don't know six seven years, Mississippi, and Arkansas, pretty avid about it um, one thing that that we're seeing and I hunt on I'm not sure if you're familiar, but I hunt primarily east of Crawley's Ridge for snows um during the light goose conservation order, and when you get on the other side of the ridge. The birds are are very spooky, and I think they got to, they have a whole lot more pressure, and a lot of that has to do with the last couple of years. the The duck hunting has been not exactly up to standards for some uh, Arkansas hunters and, and outfitters, and so what what they've decided to do, which is a complete change, because I mean five six years ago you'd never hear this. These uh, duck outfitters who you know pride themselves on on greenheads they're they're boosting their outfitter numbers by offering uh, spec hunts in the afternoon. And they're doing this over widespreads, and it's very effective. Specs are an awesome
4: bird. They're doing quite well, and they, they decoy well. And so it's 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 one of those things that mallard hunters uh, and the MAB have certainly taken a liking to, and, and for obvious reasons. And, uh, yeah, that's a great great example of a shift in distribution, but – you got to ask yourself, you know, kind of get forward thinking here, how long will that last type of scenario? Because we, we didn't ask ourselves that 10, 20 years ago down here. How long will white fronts continue to endure that?
1: Yeah, and it's really impacting the snows, you know, because by the time the Ligues Conservation Order comes in, those snows, are, they're, they're so smart, just like you kind of spoke to the fact that, you know, they're, they're so opportunistic and so adaptable and so quickly to, quick to change you know you're seeing that even by the time the goose conservation order opens these uh these these big flocks of snows are are very very aware of what people are trying to do with decoys or the, or they're shifting out early I mean birds are moving a little earlier um and I think a lot of it has to do with its pressure it's definitely pressure
4: well yeah no if there's ever a bird that it, is more directly correlated to running away from humans it's um <laughs> and they they've distributed themselves across landscape very interestingly. Right? Uh, because of it. And they've organized. I mean, like I said, we're seeing, we've are seeing seen snow geese do this for years, get bigger and bigger flocks, more and more organized. Um, and that's what we're seeing with mallards, too. We're beginning to see mallards turn into snow geese. Um, do very similar type of tactics, uh, not spread out in little flocks across the entire landscape. They're all together in big, giant concentrations, all going out to the same field feed, all coming back to the same pond reefs. We're seeing that very similar act. Those two species are breaking the rules as we speak right now. It uh, can be very frustrating for, for the hunters. Um, and I think that has a huge part of frustration and dissatisfaction we have right now is this quick change in behavior in these birds.
3: Well, hopefully we get some good breeding conditions up on the prairies this year and hopefully get a lot of young, uh, actually and in, in the Arctic as well this year, and we get a lot of young birds both on the mallard front as well as the goose front. And then hopefully that brings a bit uh, a more... Inexperienced birds down the flyway next years, uh, the next few years, so that will definitely help. It's just a, a, a whole combination of factors that drive what happens, uh, what happens throughout the flyway with these birds and their inter- interactions with hunters. Kevin, we're going to bring this to a close. We have had a fantastic conversation with you, and we appreciate uh, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise, sharing your data, uh, and and your passion for this resource. Anybody that's listened to this clearly can tell that you are definitely passionate about this resource, like. So many of your other colleagues and uh, state waterfowl biologists and we we thank you for coming on thank you for joining us and this i can guarantee you this will not be the last time that will have you on
1: excellent i look forward to it it was my pleasure thanks, all right Kev- thanks
3: kevin appreciate it thank you we extend a very special thanks to our guest on today's show kevin cry waterfowl program leader for the texas parks and wildlife department Uh, we've had kevin on for four episodes now and i believe that gives him the distinction of holding the crown of the greatest cumulative length of discussion of any of our guests that we've thus far had on the podcast so a special thanks to kevin for sharing his time uh, thanks to my co-host Chris Jennings for joining us here in studio and our producer Clay Baird who does does all the work getting these podcasts edited and out to our listeners and of course our listeners we thank you for your time we thank you for your interest and we thank you for your comments and for rating the show and most importantly we thank you for your passion commitment and support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation.